How are we doing? Fantastic. Hey, let's pray together. Father, every time we come before your word, we are both chastened and invited. Or we're challenged because there's a certain sense that we realize we don't live up to this, not at all. We see, Lord, the way that love has not motivated us. We look at times of strength in our story and we attribute it to our abilities. Lord, we take credit where we shouldn't take credit. And we fail to understand the ways that we're weak and need your help. And so, Lord, we begin, we confess. We confess that we as a people are weak. We confess, Lord, that this is true for all of us at this church, but also that it's true for each of us. We can all look and see ways we could grow. And so, Lord, in being challenged, Lord, we confess how much we need you, how much we needed Jesus to come for us. And we're grateful, Lord. We're grateful that you saw us in our weakened state. Not just before you saved us, but even afterwards. You saw how hard it would be for us. You knew that we would stumble and struggle. And so, so Lord, you gave your spirit to us that we could even respond when we were corrected. And Lord, I thank you too that this passage invites us. Invites us to remember where we've come from and what you've done. And Lord, once again, you invite us to believe that something could be more true about this next week than it was about this last one. Lord, it's easy for us to forecast the future, thinking about all the weaknesses and troubles of the past. And yet, Lord, we want to be a people of faith. We want to open your word, not just feel condemned We want to open your word and have our eyes opened to a future that you could create for us. And so, Lord, I realize that as we look at this next lesson, and as we think about our relationships together, and not just what we do, but how we relate and depend on each other, Lord, everyone in this church has ways in which they can look back and say, that was was really nice and I miss it. At the same time, Lord, everybody can look back over moments and say, that really hurt, and I'm not sure I want to try that again. And yet, Lord, I know that you don't want any of us at any points to think that we are, as we talked about last week, that we are immutable, that we can't change and we can't grow. Lord, I thank you that we can. I thank you that you make that possible within us. And so I pray for faith. Faith as we fill in these blanks, faith as we look at your word, and faith as we, at the end, take some time and think together about how we can move forward into our future, trusting you. Lord, I pray, as we have these last few weeks, for those that are weak. Lord, again, we lift before you Gus and Phyllis. Lord, I lift before you those that have felt isolated and alone. Lord, I lift before you those who have tasks coming up in the future, both inside the church and outside. Lord, we look ahead to Easter. We look ahead to a weekend where we want our church to radiate hope out into the community, and we recognize, Lord, We've got two years here, and we're not sure that we're very good at it. And so I pray that you'd, in practical ways and in just internal ways, Lord, you'd give us hope and energy for the mission that you've given to us. Lord, in addition, we lift our eyes beyond our community out to worlds that we can barely relate to. Or for those who are suffering in the Ukraine, but Lord, beyond to all the non-publicized conflict and war and persecution that your saints are enduring. 
Lord, we in particular think about what's ahead in Nepal. Lord, I thank you for the way that you've been working through Tirtha, for the way you've been working through uh, Finish the Mission. And Father, I pray that you'd give the saints boldness. Lord, meet their needs. I pray, use us, Lord. But in particular, we pray, strengthen the believers, the pastors, the leaders there. Give them words to speak hope so that those that are suffering can turn their eyes up to you as saints in centuries past have done and find you to be faithful. Lord, as well, in light of Brian talking to us about what's happening with the Crisis Pregnancy Center, we pray for Bob Hershey and his staff, for those who work in Cleveland. And Lord, we pray that you would provide a building for them. We are grateful to be warm and dry here in this place this morning. Lord, we're grateful to be able to have space to park. We're grateful that you've given us a home. And we pray the same for them. Lord, we hear the burden of increased rent. We can relate back to how, how limiting that was for us. And I pray, Lord, that in this next year, you'd provide a building for them. Lord, we add our prayer to their request that they would find something that would turn, be turnkey ready, that would seem miraculously provided for them. And Lord, I ask as well that you would add laborers and that you would give hope to every scared and burdened and guilty man and woman who enters their doors. And I pray that the good news of the gospel and the hope and the, the help that's available there would save the lives of children that are threatened. Now, Lord, we pray, help us as we open your word. Give us eyes of faith to see what you're doing. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you have a booklet, um, fantastic. We're in lesson four. If you don't have one, Anne or somebody else on the hospitality team is going to get one for you. So if you could just put a hand up, if you did not get a booklet, and you can see we got... Maybe a couple here who just need books. So, Holly, you're looking around. Thank you very much. Um, we are going to be on Lesson 4, so if you would, turn to that. It's titled The Active Church. If you haven't been with us for a while, normally what we do um, is to make our way through a book of the Bible. We do that probably 95% of our Sundays. Um, so, right now, uh, we've been in the book of Mark. We were at the end of last year in Luke looking at the infancy narrative about Jesus. And now we have um, moved into the gospel of Mark. And we're going to basically be there through the rest of this year and probably through Easter of next year. We're, um, what we did, though, here for a little bit is to decide that rather than doing a separate new members course at Trinity, we wanted to infuse that into what we're doing here on Sundays. And so these last three weeks, we've gone through lesson one on the church and what the nature and purpose of a church is on number two, lesson two, and then three, and so here we are at four, and we're going to be talking about the active church, meaning what is it that we do together? I want to begin by reading this quote from Bruce Milne. You see it there on page one. It says, a church in a culture of individuals. Bruce wrote, the Christian life is inescapably corporate. Teaching on Christian holiness is frequently concentrated almost exclusively on the holy man or the holy woman to the neglect of the biblical concern for the holy people or the holy church. The whole approach needs to be re, needs re-examination. The bulk of the New Testament teaching on the Christian life occur in letters addressed to corporate groups. All the major exhortations to holy living are plural and all major promises of victory are corporate. The apostles envisaged the Christian life and Christian sanctification in the context of a loving, caring fellowship. One of the joys I have whenever new members uh, publicly want to say this is the church they're going to attend, one of the joys that I have is putting up a slide that has every one of the one another's in Scripture up there. Some of them are, you know, greet one another with a holy kiss, which take a little bit of contextualization. 
But most of them are pretty straightforward. And when we recognize that most of them come in grammatical contexts that are not suggestions or just statements of something that's kind of good, but they actually come as exhortations, as commands, as directives, then we realize that God's expectation whenever he saves an individual isn't that that one individual would simply have a relationship with him, but that they would be part of the organic community that God has created that is unique from every other organization on the face of the planet. Every other organization has a separate purpose than the church, and we've been talking about that over these last few weeks. That if a God who is as unique as we saw that he is last week has communicated the way that he does, as we saw two weeks ago, and has built something like a local church, then the way we experience that local church ought most of the time to be a question of how are we doing. There's a long-standing relationship I've had with a member of this church. And this, this Christian often says to me, you know, one of the troubles with your church or one of the things I like with your church, and I'll almost inevitably interrupt that sentence and say, I'm not sure what you mean by my church. But I think what you mean by one is probably something like one of the things you like about our church or one of our problems is, and he'll, yeah, yeah, oh, well, there you go. I told you it's a guy. He'll, he'll often say, yeah, you're right, you're right. I don't know why I do that. And it might be just personality, but I hope it's not doctrinal. And if that doctrinal tendency kind of weaves its way into your psyche as well, I hope that when we get done with this, you'll be able to say, yeah, you know, the problems of Trinity Church are our problems. The things that are going well at Trinity Church are our successes. The story and the history of Trinity Church is our history. And it's hard to do. I get it. Especially over these last two years. I know how easy it is to kind of look and say, wow, these are things going on there. And boy, you know, Lord, I don't know how you're going to fix what's going on with them. Or maybe you look at it from another perspective. You see things that are going, you don't feel sometimes that you're worthy of being able to participate in some of the things that are life-giving at Trinity. I hope that by the time we get done, we kind of look at this together and we, with Bruce Milne, are able to say, the Christian life is inescapably corporate. One of the one another texts that I want to consider is the one that Keith read for us from Colossians 3. But before we flip over to that and think about that, I do want to ask that question that's at the bottom of this first page and get you to ponder it a little bit. Of all the one another's, and I've put some of them in there, which of these do you find easier to do in community? And which of them do you find harder for you to do? The reason that that's an important question is that I think most of us take the things that are easy for us to do and we sign them a greater importance in a church. The things that we think are easier for us are more often than not probably the ways that we evaluate what's in your top five of things that you'd say are are important in a a church. More often than not, we're probably going to put in that top five the things that are probably easiest for us. And the things that are hardest for us, the things that challenge us the most we might probably slip them down to somewhere in the bottom 20. Think, oh, those things that are kind of harder that call me out or expose some of my weaknesses, those probably aren't as important. I just want to let you know, I don't see that ranking in Scripture. So I'm going to talk about a number of ways. I didn't count the blanks this week, but we're going to go through a few. And I want us to try and hear them as best we can in parallel. Meaning... Sometimes you'll hear some things and you'll probably think, yeah, I get a gold star for that. Other times, if you think of that old Sunday school chart back in the day, either for attendance or Bible memory or something along those lines, there might be a couple that if you've looked back over your last 16 weeks, you think, oh, I don't have a star in that category at all. It's okay. Let's just let God address us through Scripture as we try to think about what 
we are called to do one for another. And let's just go to Colossians 3 for a sec and take a look at that. The passage that Paul read, or that, that Keith read for us out of the Old Testament was God's corrective to the people that he had rescued. Remember, by the time they came out of Egypt, there were probably about two and a half million Israelites. Every time the Israelite soldiers are counted, both before and after their time in the wilderness, there's about 600,000. So if you say there's a guy for every soldier, or there's a lady for every male soldier, gives you about 1.2. If you say there's maybe two kids for every adults, you come to about two and a half million. That's a lot of people. But God corrected them there in Deuteronomy 7 and said, hey, the reason God chose you wasn't because you were so numerous. Let's go back 400 years and just ask a question of who did God actually bring in? He brought in a starving family that was right on the cusp of being burnt out because they had no food because they lived in the wrong spot. The only way they were saved was because of one of the most horrific things anybody's ever done to one of their siblings. God used some of that worst in their family to actually save them. That's the backstory of Israel. Joseph, betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery, wound up being the means by which God saved the people, brought them down into Egypt, and then they multiplied in the process of being nothing but slaves under another polytheistic nation. That's how God picked them. And he said, the reason he did that, it's not because you were all that impressive, it's simply because of this, God loved you. And in Colossians 3, then, Paul takes that same language, and he says this, put on then... As God's chosen ones who were holy and beloved. So in other words, if that Deuteronomy 7 psyche fits into us as a church today, though we weren't slaves and though we have a totally different backstory, if we keep these things in mind, it's not because of your strength that God picked you. And it's not because of your beauty that God picked you. But in light of all that stuff that got covered with snow when the gospel got applied... You understand this fundamentally. You're loved by God. Then here's what you're free to become. You're free to become compassionate, kind, humble, meek, and patient. That sounds fantastic, doesn't it? That's the kind of people God wants to create for himself. People who wouldn't be marked by bitterness and impatience and arrogance. But verse 13 tells us the context in which we'll figure out if we're that way. It's that other people will require a little bit of our bearing with them. And you'll be the source that other people need to bear with some trouble as well. So those problems mean that we'll be able to bear with one another. And because complaints and problems show up in the Christian life and in the Christian community. If one has a complaint against you, you're going to forgive them. Because the Lord's forgiven you, you can then also forgive. That's the logic of the beginning of this. And then more than anything else, because he wants us to be united together and to be in harmony with one another... We're to put on love, verse 14, which then binds everything together. And then the peace of Christ can rule in our hearts, to which indeed we were called in one body. And we can then be thankful. And here comes our one another, verse 16. So if that's all true, what do we get to do? We get to sing and speak to one another, not about us and our story, not about words that defend our reputation, but words that exalt the story and the character of Jesus Christ so that the word of Christ that dwells in us richly overflows then in the way that we're teaching and we're admonishing one another in all wisdom. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another In all this wisdom, with thankfulness, he reminds us at this end of verse 15 and now then here at the end of verse 16. Thankfulness in your hearts to God. 
Now, as I acknowledged in our prayer, God's word like this, it corrects us, doesn't it? There are probably a few phrases or words in those few verses that prick a little bit, don't they? You'd look and say, yeah, you know, I mean, in the midst of complaints, man, I don't know how forgiving I've been. I don't know how meek or patient or compassionate I've been. Frankly, as I've talked about stuff, I'm not sure people would think of me as kind. And if you think I'm talking about you, I might be, but I'm, I'm kind of talking about me. I've mentioned that before, that really, if I, if I went back these last three years, well, they haven't turned out the way I thought. And I've really had to question whether or not all of this is for my dreams or for God's vision of what he wants to accomplish. So I read a passage like this, and I think, boy, man, I, I think I'm forgiving, but I know that wasn't a particularly forgiving thing that I said. I think I've been patient, but boy, that was not a particularly compassionate moment for me. And so it's not until I come back and I recognize that, man, I'm not going to get the peace inside that I really want until the word of Christ is dwelling in me richly so it can overflow to other people. I'm not sure I'm going to be particularly thankful unless the forgiveness that God has given to me then overflows, uh, you know, out of the way that God's been at work. You might have interacted with this text a little bit different. But I think what we can say is that not one of these uh, kind of sentences is put forward as a question. If you went back to verse 12 there, Isaac, it would not sound like this. God was curious, having chosen you, whether you thought it would be okay to be kind and forgiving in the, late, in the midst of this recent struggle that you're having. He thought it'd be a good idea, but he really figured he'd leave it up to you because he understands how tough things have been lately. Are you sure you, you, you guys good with this? Are you okay to try and aim for these kind of tasks? That's not the way that it's structured, is it? These aren't suggestions or questions. These are commands. And so all of us are both commanded to something that's hard for us, but we're also invited by a God who envisions the possibility that this can be true of us. See, the commands of Scripture aren't given to us so that we just feel guilty all the time because we can't live up to them. They expose our need for God's Spirit, but they also invite us through dependence on God's Spirit to a future we can't envision. That means that the longest and most deep-seated conflict you have with any other person can be resolved by the power of the gospel. That means that the worst parts of you, the most impatient parts of you, the angriest, bitterest parts of you won't stay true with you. They won't be a part of you forever. God is going to purge that from you. And the language of scripture is, if he's going to do that someday, why not today? Why not today so that we could ultimately be thankful? Now, the reason this is so important, let's flip to our next page, the community and fellowship there on page two is that the, the fellowship that God envisions for a Christian community isn't just that we would be all doing these things as scattered units. It's that we're built together. So think about these four categories that he gives to us. God thinks of us as his nation. Looked at this passage before from 1 Peter 2. A nation has one purpose. A nation is given one direction. We're a family, point B. We are a dwelling, point C. We are a body, point D. What that means is that the strength of the nation, the health of the body, the integrity of the building, it is vitally connected to the way that we are individually and corporately looking to take passages like Colossians 3, verses 12 through 16, and to put them into practice. Every moment that bitterness enters the church, the building shakes and the joints crack. Every moment that the church becomes more suspicious Cancer spreads a little bit more and degenerative work continues through the body. 
Every time that there is a conflict that endures, the family structure feels a little weaker, a little more like we just share a last name rather than really sharing a story together. But healthy buildings and healthy bodies and healthy families and healthy countries are dependent on each other. We don't just share space or houses. We don't just share history. We share something that Scripture envisions as being organic. Scripture knows nothing of solitary religion. And I I get why, if you were thinking a little suspiciously of me right now, you might be thinking, well, yeah, Darren, I get that you're saying that. That's because you're a pastor. Your job is trying to hold this thing together. I guess that's true. It's just I'd rather you understood my job not as the foundation of this appeal, but more as like the outgrowth of something else that's foundational. The foundational reasons that I'm making this appeal is because, one, we see it by scriptural example. There on page three, that's your first blank. Biblical fellowship like this is described through examples in scripture. Acts 2 is one of them. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. That should be happening every day in the church, right? Kind of, yes. God has not been adding to our church every day those who are being saved. Not everybody in our church is selling everything that they have and giving it to each other. Why? Well, there are some unique things that are happening in Acts 2. And so just respect the context of it. You remember, Acts 2 came, come, this passage comes on the heels of a feast called Pentecost. A time when Jewish believers would have left everything for one of the pilgrimages to Jerusalem. They're there to celebrate the beginning of this harvest season. And one of the things that they're so excited about as Christians now is that what was a Jewish festival became a moment of the Holy Spirit being poured out on the church. This was miraculous. People who never spoke each other's language could now communicate with each other. Something that hadn't made sense before. The actual presence of God in Jerusalem coming down in fire happened not in the holiest of holies, but on holy people. People are living out Old Testament realities right in front and everybody's being gathered together. This was a miraculously supernatural moment. But it sets up patterns. And though we don't see the same kind of heat burning in the church today or the same kind of light exploding out of the church as as this moment, fire still works kind of the same way. And so realities like this ought to still be true in our church. Maybe not with the same intensity, but we want to be ready should the Lord bring this kind of intense revival. But because the same things that were started there are still true today, we would still expect to see certain things. So point two, we'd expect that they spent time together. This didn't just happen and everybody goes back to their homes. You see, when everybody stayed in Jerusalem, they saw something unique that called them away from their normal lives. And because there were people who had come for a little stay, and we're now extending their stay, there was great need. And so more than them just spending time together, they had these organized point three meetings. So every day in the temple courts, they're getting together. But then beyond that, they also had these unorganized meetings where they just broke bread together in each other's homes. So you've got these examples of what's going on, and you can hear in Acts 2 some elements of church life. Teaching, fellowship, generosity, the sense of them just kind of doing things in an organized way, doing things in unorganized ways. This is a unique moment, and eventually the church that was there in Jerusalem got scattered back 
to their homes. If you read the book of Acts, you realize the way God did that was through persecution. But still, the church that was gathered then got kind of exploded back out, and you'd expect that where they landed after that explosion, they'd be doing some of these same things. 2,000 years later, as we think about this gospel outpost, we're looking to do the same things. So that teaching strengthens what we're doing. But more than that, that fellowship kind of makes real what we're doing. The fact that, that church in the United States has become so audience-driven is concerning. And it should be. We want to rethink every structure and every tradition that keeps us from living out these kinds of ways as the normal definition of what it means to be a church. If church life in the United States can feel very much like to be part of a church, I come into a building, I pay for the service, and I see what's going on on the stage, and I wonder, boy, if I could ever get to be up there on that stage, then apparently God would be using me. Boy, guys, to the the level that we're imitating that, we should really repent because that's not what you see happening here. You see life being lived out by everyone together. So the believers were together. They had everything in common. They were even selling possessions, and they were giving it to anyone as he had need. Do you see just the all-inclusive nature of that? This is everybody doing this life together. And beyond just that scriptural example you see in point B, it's also a scriptural mandate. So that we're all called to consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works. Not neglecting to meet together is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and then doing that more and more as we get closer to the day. Now, with that said, let's just talk in some broad ways. And again, let me encourage you not to categorize these and to rank them. I've just put them out as just some examples. These are just seven on the next page. This kind of fellowship really applied to our lives together should look like some things. Should like, A, like us sharing the gospel. So John writes to the people that he loves in 1 John, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. John is one of those guys who calls you to lofty thoughts with lofty language. Sometimes it's kind of hard to know what he's talking about. But essentially, he says in the very beginning, we saw stuff and we heard stuff and we told you about it. That's John's way of talking about the gospel. He's not just saying what he's seen and heard, like, hey, I went to a movie and I want to tell you about the movie. He's talking specifically about the fact that he was around Jesus Christ. He heard and saw Jesus do things, and that's what he's proclaimed to them. But in doing that, it wasn't just a lesson. It was that the fellowship that they had with God because of what they enjoyed could actually be passed out to and shared to others through that proclamation. So when John says that he's sharing the gospel, he's not just talking about something academic. He's not just trying to make sure that the church he's trying to influence has the right statement of faith. He's trying to say this fellowship that we have with the Father, it was accomplished through a story, and we've told you about that story so you could experience that fellowship. That's a way of thinking about what it means to apply this kind of fellowship together. But more than that, it's not just sharing the gospel, it's sharing our lives. Paul said to the Thessalonians, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you've become very dear to us. Now, I'm trying to apply this one. Let me just talk briefly about community groups. Community groups in the church have had, uh, you know, in our church, at least over my kind of 16 years here, they've had a bit of a, they've had a bit of an interesting model. Church I came from, we were pretty well scattered around, and so we tried to get together with people that were in our neighborhoods. So we lived in a different county that the church was going to. There were only, you know, seven or eight families that lived in Bucks County, and so we had a Bucks County community group. It was a geographic reality. If you went way back into the, some of the underpinnings of the history of our church, 
lots of people lived kind of in the Garfield Heights region and sort of built out from there. There were a lot of neighborhoods that really were just populated with a lot of people from the church that, that folks were attending. And it was kind of nice because there was a certain sense. Some of your friends lived close around you. Here we are, however many years later. We don't have a lot of people that live very close to this church. That's been interesting. In fact, if you're a guest who's come and you live close here, one of the hard things in trying to help people, you know, kind of get to know us a little bit is to say, well, yeah, so a lot of us come from, uh, you know, well, some come from Cleveland, some come from Lorain County, some are up in, uh, well, here we go, we got Sheffield Lake, right? We've got, uh, you know, I live kind of in Olmstead, but we're in one corner of Olmstead Falls, and I live in the other corner of Olmstead Township. It's hard sometimes for folks. Michael talked about people that he works with, and he's like, yeah, I'd love to invite them to church 45 to 55 minutes away, as long as they're not coming from the wrong region. Like, it's tricky, right? So how are we going to shape community groups in the church? Well, we talked about doing it through neighborhoods and some of that. Sometimes we've tried to do it through age groups a little bit. Sometimes we've tried to do it through, you know, just some leaders that people would gravitate to. I just, I just admit, guys, trying to figure out how to create fellowship in the church is an exhausting leadership task. It really is. And sometimes when it's not happening, we have to do a little bit. We have to shuffle the cards a little bit. We have to play a little bit of musical chairs and say, hey, this, this group's getting pretty big and maybe a little bit stagnant. You guys think about splitting? I can think of groups that we split, and we thought, oh, man, after the fact, that was a bad decision because that was a really healthy group. We split it up, and boy, neither of the groups really were kind of as powerful apart as they really were together. It's a hard decision to make. But the battle's worth it. We, th- we think it is. We've often said community groups are one way that we try to encourage these things to happen together. But it is easy to share the gospel. And I'll just say this, it's tough to share your life. Because sometimes you share your life and people don't handle it well. You share a need and they forget. They don't pray for you. They say they will, but you, you, know, you kind of feel it. They don't. You share a weakness and they come in to fix it. They offer no compassion. Or sometimes we overlook problems for longer than we should. These are tricky things to do because just let me ask you this question. How organized and neat is your life? Well, start to peel back the layers and you're not sure you really want to share that with other people, right? It's easy to want to insulate ourselves and it's easy to feel hard and, and, and hurt when we think about it. But we do think that fellowship involves these two factors, sharing our, the gospel and sharing our lives together with others who need to hear and need to see. Beyond that, we share verse 6. This is an old phrase from the, the roots of our church. This is, those of you who've been around for a while, share evidences of grace. Sometimes little trite sayings are just trite sayings, and it's kind of annoying, and you just have to let the like, vocabulary die. But this is one that I think is... It's deeply true at the level of the the title. Because God's at work in people, and they forget. And sometimes you just need to let them know that that grace is evident. Paul in 1 Corinthians says, I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you've been enriched in every way in all your speaking and all your knowledge Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. You would think that would be coming from the book of Thessalonians, perhaps. Or maybe Ephesians or Philippians, strong, good churches. But that's something he's saying about Corinth. And if it can be said of Corinth, it feels like, well, then it can be said of any church. Because God is evidently at work, and sometimes we just need reminders. But sometimes the grace that we need comes for restoration, and that's point D. We're told to encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Sin lies to every one of our members, every one of the bricks in this building, every one of the body parts 
of Christ's body are always in danger of being lied to. And so we need to be restored back to truth. And God gives us grace to share with each other for that. We point E, share motivation for godliness. And then we share our weakness for both prayer and confession. So that ultimately we can share these moments of worship together. Now, like I said, you might get together and just do a great job of singing with other people. You may get together and think, oh, man, singing in a group of seven to eight people is really hard. I don't like hearing my voice. I'm not sure I'm really a big part of that. You might come in and feel like, boy, all I can do is share weakness. Or maybe you're a little bit hesitant and you come into a group and you think, you know, I don't know how I feel about sharing in a big group, but boy, I hear this other person's kind of weak and I think I could just go meet with them after and I could try to be an encouragement to them. All of us have of these seven, and there's many more, all of us have ways in which we'd say it's easier for me to apply this principle of biblical fellowship together and it's harder. Let me list for you a few benefits that I think will ultimately kind of move us that way. The first is that we then, by doing this, we grow into maturity. The building gets a little bigger. It's a little stronger. The body becomes a little more mature, to use the language there of Ephesians 4. The whole body joined and held together by every supporting document grows and builds itself up in love. And that's happening as each part does its work. Not only do we grow into maturity, but that we then receive support. You see some verses there that kind of back up that concept. But beyond this, and this is where I really want to shift our attention moving forward. If we think that God has planted us here in this neighborhood, in this community, if you think that what God has called us to do here in Olmstead Falls is to kind of take that Old Testament concept of being a light that shines out, or what Jesus said, something that shouldn't be hidden, hidden but put on a stand. One of the biggest ways that we're called to do that is through this, because point C says that we authenticate our witness by putting these concepts into place. John says it this simply, by, all men will know, by this all men will know you are my disciples if you love one another. One of the worst sort of illustrations of this could be if you decided that you were sharing the gospel with somebody you worked with, you heard they were struggling, and you let them know that when you've struggled like that, Jesus and the fellowship he offers to you, the strength and the love that he offers to you, the forgiveness that he offered to you, that has been the only thing that helped you through a time similar to that. And that resonated with them. They thought, wow, that, that makes a lot of sense. Is there somewhere you go where you hear that and you're reminded of that? And you say, yes, I've got a church. That, it's that, that's the community that I hear this over and over because I forget often. And so I come together with others and I hear this both in small groups and on larger groups. And you brought them in. And as they walked in, all they witnessed were Christians in the foyer kind of smacking at each other and having fights. You walked in, nobody was really all that friendly. The things that you heard were about people kind of talking badly about other people. In other words, the church community wasn't authenticating the witness that you just shared. It wasn't backing up the reality that, yeah, being able to be loved by God helps me to love other people. It gives me the ability to endure trials like the one you're talking about. Instead, if the church was doing the exact opposite of that, what would you be saying when you left the meeting? Probably say, I am so sorry because I feel like everything that just happened in our group lied about what I told you personally. That's the negative example. But what if you brought them in and what they witnessed was believers caring about each other and praying for each other? What is if what they were able to see was a group of people who weren't so impressed with their own goodness, but were weak and were dependent on God and were sharing strength that comes out of that with each other? What if they saw people who were laughing together and crying together and praying together and 
and encouraging each other on. That moment would authenticate the things that you were trying to share on the side. Beyond that, point D, we would then extend protection for each other. Romans 16 says then that in a church like this, it's worthy of being protected from those who are causing divisions and putting obstacles in the way that are contrary to the teaching that you've learned. Keep away from them. Now, in context, it's really helpful to understand that what Paul's talking about, having shared all of the gospel, the good news that those who were estranged from God aren't brought to God because of their background, but instead are equally guilty before God and are then reconciled to God and then reconciled to each other so that everything they were enslaved to before, they're free from and they can now live for the glory and the honor and the power of God. That's a good message. And there are some people who, in the teaching that they were bringing, were undermining that. Saying, yeah, no, actually, that stuff Paul's saying about Jews and Gentiles, no, 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 no. No, that's, that's not the way the gospel works. People that are undermining that message, Paul is saying, are, protect, or are, are needing you to protect the church from them, and so you need to keep away from them. A, a healthy church does that as well. We want to make sure that in every teaching format that's going on, from the the way that the littlest ones are hearing about the gospel, they're not hearing that God loves you because you're obedient. That's teaching that your little ones need to keep away from. But that you can obey a God who loves you? There you go. There's a simple message of the gospel. On every level, we want to make sure that we're protecting the church so that this kind of fellowship can happen. And lastly, we experience a compassion that comes out of it. Sorry, a compassion, a companionship that comes out of it. Why doesn't this happen? Five potential reasons. All of them negative and if I was going to redo this, especially over what I think I've learned over this last kind of two years, I'd probably put a sixth or a seventh in there to just talk about our weakness. Talk about sometimes things can happen that make it very difficult. Paul said that there, if there are people that are hard, that are obstinate, they need to be opposed. But sometimes there are people that are weak and they just need to be lifted up. And just so you know, these hindrances that I put in, I I want you to know, though they target sinful problems that get in the way, though they're a little bit more corrective, I I might just add a couple others in here if I was going to be redoing this, which we probably will at some point. The first one, though, is self-sufficiency. You understand that if the main goal is for us to get together That if there's an internal opinion that I don't need anybody else, well, it's going to be hard to really experience this inescapably corporate vision of the Christian life. The second would be that of pride because fellowship requires humility. Experiencing genuine relationships comes through a vulnerability and a compassion that makes humility possible. Additionally, it can be pride that demands common factors, such as a compatible temperament or common experiences, a shared social background, a common level of intelligence, the same age group, or a similar season of life in a situation or their season, uh, that all of those have to be true in order for biblical fellowship to occur. That can be natural, but that can also, that demand to only hang out with people like that, it can be rooted in pride. Point C is that selfishness. Rather than an attitude of servanthood, an attitude that everyone exists to serve me, or bitterness, like unresolved tensions that can become wedges that divide, or even elitism, an attitude that says, I could help my brother and sister, but I'm not sure that anybody around here is mature enough to be able to help me. And I'll say, as a guy who's approaching 50 and who arrived out here around 35, one of the things I've been very grateful for is the lack of elitism. Because when I came here, most of the folks that were in our church were a little bit older than I was. And frankly, it would be an ageist elitism that I could have suffered under. 
what do you know, you young buck, little 35-year-old? And in truth, I would have had to say probably not very much. But God's put me in a spot where if we do see something together, he's called me to lead you in it. And to know a church that, that rallied toward that, rather than making me prove myself, was a wonderful gift. And we want to make sure that we don't in any way kind of let any of these hindrances rob us of the kind of fellowship that we really want to enjoy together. So what is it that God's ultimately trying to create in us? This is the second point, really, that we're looking at in this lesson. It's an army of servants. For us to be a community then in action together, what we're looking to be are God's servants, point A. Looking up a little bit, this is how we know what love is. Christ Jesus, Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. There's a number of verses right around there that just primarily remind us that God has not called us into the kingdom of God to be served, but to serve. If we just try and ask the question of why has God given us this building, I think it's so that these things that we've all talked about can happen, so that we're not just sort of living this disconnected life with others, though we all affirm the same things or listen to the same things, but so that we're trying to act out these things together. But ultimately, that's not the end of it. One analogy that I've heard that I think is so helpful is that sometimes we're called together in a huddle, where we come together and part of what it means for us to be a team is that we kind of arms together and we all looking in together and we're asking some questions, trying to figure out what the plan is. But the, from that, we all break and we all head out to the spots that the Lord's given us. Those are two ways of being united. And it's easy for a church, particularly as we're thinking about fellowship, to think about the huddling up of the community group, the sense of us coming together. But can you imagine watching a football game that was only huddles? Defense, what have you decided to do? Oh, this is our play. Offense, what have you decided to do? This is our play. Good plays. All right, second down. Defense, what are you going to do? We're going to do this. Well, offense, what are you going to do? Mmm, very good plays. Who would watch that? Imagine an army that functions that way. Get together, get all your plans, and then figure out, hopefully, it's going to work. Why do you go to college? So you can learn something. Why? So you can do it. The church works exactly this same way. We have our huddled up kind of moments, but we're called into service for the king because A, we're God's servants, but B, then we are dependent servants. The Lord is not served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all men life and breath and everything else, he says. God is my helper. God is on my side as my helper, two psalms. So we're God's servants, but not because he needs us. It's because we get to depend on him, and then we're led by him, and we are then mutually serving one another, point D. Through love, serve one another. As each has a gift, use it to serve one another. Listen to this statement from Philippians 2. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God highly exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One of the purposes of that verse is that we end with an amen at the end of it. Absolutely. 
We want to remember the gospel so that we can engage in worship together, so that we're one of those tongues who are proclaiming things to the glory of God the Father. But also the reason that that passage there is the way it starts. It's so easy to be vain and selfish. And we shouldn't do things from that motivation. Instead, the core reason for why we do things is that we're humbly remembering that others are better than us. And that's tough, because you don't think that. You ever disagree with somebody? And at the end of the day, the core reason for the disagreement was that you were just so convinced that their argument was better than yours? Probably not. Most of the time we get in arguments, it's because we're just convinced we're better than other people. So the reason for this verse is for worship, but also that each of us should not look only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. In other words, it's so that we think and believe and act. Our attitude should be like Jesus' attitude. Now let's remember his attitude. He had way more than you did, and he deferred himself to a point way lower than you've ever been. And that led to his great exaltation. And if we think that's a good plan, then we shouldn't think ourselves better than Jesus when we start walking the same path. So we are those who then are to consider, let's jump ahead to the servanthood aspect of this. We are those who are to consider what servanthood looks like. Look at this in point A. We are to consider these one another's. We're to be devoted to one another. We're to honor one another, rejoice with one another, and mourn with one another. We're to counsel one another, greet one another, care for one another, serve one another in love, bear one another's burdens, encourage one another, build one another up. We're to pray for one another. Which sounds great. But it sounds like a billboard that Christine and I always used to drive past. We lived a little north of Philadelphia, and Christine's folks lived near Hershey. It's about an hour and 45-minute drive. And every time we would drive, we would pass this billboard advertising this one spot, and I would always say the same thing. Sometime I want to stop there. And then we'd be due out at her folks' place at 1.00. So we'd leave at 11.15. And on that hour, 45-minute drive, I would see the sign and say, sometime I'd like to experience that. Sometime I'd like that to be part of our lives. Sometime I'd like our family to be marked by the experience of stopping there and enjoying what they have to offer. And I never did. Because I always left an hour and 45 minutes. Well, not always. Sometimes I left an hour and a half. But I never left three hours and 15 minutes beforehand so that I had extra time. I never planned to experience it. Here's how you can plan some ways. You could plan to experience some of these one than others. And they come in the form of three questions. You could ask, why don't I serve? If you're just trying to plan for these one another's, you can ask yourself, why don't I serve? And that might take a little while to get the answer to that. It might be just the lack of making a plan. You have filled your life with so much and everything that's in your life right now feels absolutely indispensable and so there is no room. Or... You may come up with some other answers, and then you can ask, how can I serve? And everything that we've talked about, our heart, where we're trying to serve unto the Lord, we're trying to serve with humility, then leads us to ask, where can I serve? Think about those around you who are idle. And Paul says that they might need some admonishing. Remember one time, back in the, the old plaza, Steve gave a, a, a word to the church. He shared something from the mic. 
and said, I think sometimes our church can feel, Steve, I'm sure you can correct this. If you want the original version, go back to Steve. This is the, this is the, the rough commentary off of it. He said, sometimes I feel like our church can be kind of like a boat that's being rowed, but it's just going in circles. So we've got some strong people pulling on one side, and we feel like we've got some weaker people pulling on the other side. It's easy to think that some of the strong people behind the oars are saying, what's wrong with you guys over there? How come you're not pulling at the oars as hard as we are? And his counsel was that we give up that attitude. Instead, change seats. And maybe that if you see somebody who's having a little trouble pulling at their oar, you come along over with them and you pull along with. And you say, hey, I I don't see you pulling that hard. How can we do this together? How can I help? How can you benefit from some of the ways that I'm strong that you're a little weaker. Sometimes the idol just need to be admonished. Sometimes, though, and we get from 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 14, there are those that are faint-hearted, and they just need to be encouraged. Maybe they don't need you to sit down at the oar with them, but they just need to say, hey, I see that you're struggling a little bit. How can I help you? How can I encourage you on? They just need that guy on the drums, boom, 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 boom. Something that just says, hey, we can keep going. We can pull a little harder. We can keep going. And there are those that are weak who just need to be helped. But Paul says in all of it there to the Thessalonians that we are to be patient with them all. The underlying assumption with all those recommendations is that you see problems. You see some ways that it feels like we're not really going quite as strongly as we could. Let me encourage you, God has not highlighted that for you so that you can feel smug. God has not revealed that to you so that you can feel better. God has revealed that to you because he wants his church to grow, and that's the first step of how you can help. There are the idle, the faint-hearted, and the weak, and they need strength, and they have struggles, and they aren't working. But though we want to be patient, we want to plan for how these one another's of honor and devotion and rejoicing and counsel and greeting and care and serving and bearing and encouraging and praying and building up. We want to see, are we just going to drive by the billboard all the time, or can we actually make some plans for how we can help out with some of the weaknesses in our church and in our brothers and sisters. At the end of the day, here's what I think this is going to accomplish in us. You see, service begins in the church. This passage here, this is all the way to the end. Sorry, just in case you're having trouble finding your books. We're on servanthood extended. Underneath that, it says a shift of focus. Now look at the first point underneath that. So service begins in the church. Notice the ways that the verses above there, verses 9 through 13, target the Christian community as the focal point for our hearts to serve in zealous and fervent love. So we read this. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. And then you see that you see the, the part there, the, 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 just those, those verses up at the top. Love one another, he says, with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. He says at the end, continue to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. What's he saying in verses 9 through 13? There are needs in the Christian community right around you, and I want you to start there. I want you to start by trying to figure out how you can love, how you can honor, how you can contribute so that your love is genuine and you guys can together hold fast to what's good. That, I think, is the way of saying that service begins in the church, but then from that, it continues to the world. That's our second point there. Service continues to the world. Notice the way that verses 14 to 21 move to the Roman church's enemies. The same commitment to service is extended to the Roman world outside the membership of the church. So in verse 14, he continues on and he says, bless those who persecute you. Bless them. Don't curse them. 
Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far it depends on you. Live peaceably with all. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it's written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Guys, it's going to be a rough go to be a Christian. If you're not sensing that already, we're not popular anymore. (laughs) We're not. I could take you through probably every point in our doctrinal statement and help you understand. Well, I wouldn't have to work too hard to help you understand why that is mockable today. We made in the image of a God who created, that that God communicated in infallible ways and has preserved the record of his revelation for us in the word. The fact that we're made male and female. The fact that marriage is to be held in honor between a man and a woman. We're just, we're losing ground in popular culture. It's not going to be easy for us. And so it is easy to look and say, there are those who are going to persecute us. And so we have to figure out how to hold our ground and how to fight back. And no, what Paul says is, no, no, you're called to be a blessing in those contexts. Not to repay the evil you're going to feel for the evil or the evil you're going to receive and to give that back. You're not called to avenge yourself, but instead you're going to see needs that come in the face of your enemy and you're called to feed them. You're called to bless them. And I think the logic of this text and I think the logic of the New Testament is that a church does that well once they've cared for each other, that they huddle up well and then get deployed into the world. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to take some time. We're going to worship. We're going to enjoy communion together. And then we're going to have a little bit of time here at the end where Keith and Mike are going to come up. We're going to talk a little bit about just how we've tried to be doing this, some of the the ways that it's been difficult, and some of the ways that we see God at work. So let's stand together. I'm going to pray for us. And we're going to sing. And then we'll we'll rally together to, uh, to, uh, to talk as well. Father, thank you for the fact that you give us a vision for Christian community that's so different than anything else the world creates. Lord, thank you that we're different from one another, even though, Lord, we have so much that binds us together. And so, Father, I pray, I thank you first. I want to thank you for the way you've preserved our church over so many years. I thank you for the way that you have kept our story going despite And in light of all of our failures, Lord, despite my failures, my weaknesses, you have preserved something here. And Father, we want to see you strengthen it. We want our fellowship to reflect the possibility that the gospel is the most powerful force at work in the world. And so, Lord, I pray through marriages, through families, through friendships, Lord, through all the different subgroups of our church and our different ministry teams and our community groups and our friendships, Lord, I pray strengthen this body that we could be a witness to the world. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing together.